Hi there, I'm Dr. Vivian Lowe, and you're on VLMD Rounds, a podcast on medical science and tools to optimize your health. Now, if you haven't already, please do check out my website, vivianlowemd.com, V-Y-V-Y-A-N-E-L-O-H-M-D.com, and you'll see the schedule for live stream Q&A events there. I would love to have you join me at some of those sessions. Uh, if there are any questions you may have regarding podcast episodes or just anything on your metabolic health, I'd love to chat with you on those live stream sessions. I think those of you who've been following the podcast can see, yes, I am still at an off-site location. I'm still traveling, but we're getting these podcast episodes made no matter what, all right? You know by now that I take requests So feel free to either contact me through my website or you can leave me a message, a comment um, on YouTube or any other place where you can leave your comments. All right. Uh, You can also find me on LinkedIn and Instagram. Okay. So today's episode is going to be focused on sleep. Let's go. All right. Why do I focus on sleep with my patients? Because sleep is really intricately linked to metabolic health, which is what I see most of my patients for, right? They have metabolic syndrome, they have metabolic dysfunction, and in order to help them reverse disease or to prevent further disease, we have to address sleep. If you have poor quality of sleep or poor duration of sleep, you're going to have increased metabolic dysfunction. So you're more likely to have obesity. You're more likely to develop type 2 diabetes. You're also more likely to have neurodegenerative diseases. All right. So it's definitely linked to your health. Oftentimes, I will have uh, the sleep doctors refer patients to me And we'll joke between us because they'll always say, look, can you help my patient lose weight so they'll sleep better? And I'll always respond, sure, if you help my patient sleep better, I can help them lose weight better, right? So it's a catch-22, which came first, chicken or egg? Um, I'm betting on the sleep. (laughs) Okay. All right. So let's dive into it. First thing I ask my patients is how many hours of um, sleep that they get. And I get, you know, a variety of answers, of course. Now, when I first started teaching my patients, uh, I think the general consensus was more towards about seven hours of sleep. But now I've seen that number creep up. And actually, the National Sleep Foundation seems to recommend between seven to nine hours of sleep. So it's actually inched its way up. And still, one-third of Americans actually get less than six hours of sleep, okay? So most people, even if they're you know, above the six-hour mark, are probably still getting less sleep than they actually need. Now, the younger you are, the more sleep you need. And you think of infants, they're sleeping all day, it seems, right? 16, 17 hours, you know, anything from 14 to maybe 17 hours in that range. And then as they grow older, when they get into childhood, 
then you know the sleep periods uh, shorten and it's going to fall somewhere in the 10 to 12 hour range and that's true even for teenagers. Teenagers I think should probably still be sleeping about 10 to 11 hours per day and you know how many of us know teenagers that are sleeping that many hours right they're usually up a lot more than that uh, and then once we get into adulthood as I said that range it's a range because you know it's not an absolute thing but that range is between seven to nine hours anything less you're not getting enough rest and then anything greatly more than nine hours may indicate some other dysfunction going on with you sometimes it's hard to tease out which came first, right? It could be that people who are sicker are just resting more and sleeping more, or is it that the fact that they're sleeping more is predisposing them to more illness, right? That's hard to tease out. But seven to nine hours, and uh, for most of my patients, I'm aiming for a solid eight hours of sleep for them, okay? And, you know, they still struggle with getting the eight hours of sleep but hopefully by the time I'm done with today's episode you'll be more convinced to kind of spend a lot more time prioritizing sleep. If we look at sleep again back in the day when I first started teaching my patients we had five stages of sleep one two three four REM and now I think we've consolidated things a little bit more so the terminology now is more along the lines of non-REM sleep versus REM sleep. REM stands for rapid eye movement, as most of you know, right? So REM versus non-REM sleep. Now, non-REM sleep is still kind of divided into three sort of sections, N1, N2, N3, what used to be stage one, two, and three. And I think they just lumped stage three and four together, right? So N1 is very light sleep, and it's sort of the initiation phase of sleep where you know you're just drifting off and most people don't remember anything of n1 right they don't even know um, that they've been slowly drifting into sleep and then they get into n2 sleep where they're into deeper sleep and the heart rate is starting to slow down the muscles are starting to relax and we start to see on EEG a little bit of those sleep spindles. But by the time we get to stage three sleep, then you're going to see a lot more of the sleep spindles. And you'll see these delta waves that develop. And these are slow waves on the EEG. And that signifies that the patient is now in N3 of non-REM sleep. And then after a period of that phase, we go into the REM phase, the rapid eye movement phase. And each cycle, and one, two, three, and then REM, is going to take us about 90 to 110 minutes, okay, to complete the cycle. So we go through one, two, three, REM, one, two, three, REM, one, two, three, REM. And we have these cycles through the night, anywhere from five maybe two, seven cycles through the night. Okay, so what is actually happening in the different phases of sleep? Now, the way I have people think about it, and it's 
really a big generalization, but it does help to think of it this way, right? I have my patients think of the N3 stage, which is deep sleep, right? That phase is what I call uh, the body repair um, phase, okay? And in that phase, we have the patient um, reaching the lowest heart rate, lowest blood pressure, and respiratory rate in the entire day. So as they drift deeper and deeper into sleep and they hit that N3, and they, you start to see the delta waves on the EEG and increased sleep spindles, then we have the lowest vital signs for the patient. The breathing becomes very regular, very deep, right? And they may be breathing anywhere from five, four to six breaths a minute. And the heart rate drops significantly and blood pressure also drops significantly. This phenomenon is known as nocturnal dipping. Okay, and we'll come back and talk about it in a little bit. So the heart rate drops, all your vital signs drop. And this is the phase where we can think of the body prioritizing repair and regeneration, okay? So we have to repair um, any damage that has been done. So if you've gone out during the day and you were exposed to the sun and you had some UV damage to your skin, then during your beauty sleep, right, especially in that deep sleep phase, we're going to have repair of that collagen in your skin. If you went to the gym, uh, in a previous episode, I talked about resistance training. So, you know, you're not actually building muscle in the gym. You're damaging muscle, giving it mechanical tension, causing metabolic stress to the muscle. And then the repair process actually happens during sleep. We're making proteins. We're making hormones. A lot of signaling is going on during that regenerative phase, um, the N3 phase of deep sleep. Okay. And then we go into REM. Now, rapid eye movement, I used to think of when I was a kid and I heard that phase. I just thought your eyes just kind of went back and forth like that, left, right, right? But it turns out it's actually very erratic, jerky eye movements. And there are a number of things that happen besides those eye movements in the REM phase. For one thing, now your blood pressure starts to rise and your blood pressure rises as well. Your breathing becomes irregular and shallow, okay? And actually, if we were to look at your brain waves, it's really hard to know if you're awake or in REM phase sleep, if we're only looking at the brain waves, because the brain waves during REM sleep really look like the brain waves when you're awake. Okay, so how do we know that you're in REM? Well, when you're in REM, you actually have this unique phenomenon where you are paralyzed, right? You go into a state of paralysis, so the brainstem sends a message down the spinal cord and you have this full paralysis of your body. So if you were in a sleep lab, for example, and had you all hooked up, and they're monitoring your breathing and your oxygen level and your heart rate. They're also measuring your muscle tone, okay? 
And when they see that you're in a state of paralysis and you're just kind of flaccid and you don't have any tone, then, you know, when they see the brain waves and it looks like you're awake but you have no muscle tone, that tells them that you are actually in the REM phase. Okay, so you do have this state of paralysis. And in fact, I would usually ask my patients if anyone has experience waking up and not being able to move. It's actually quite terrifying. I've had that happen not very recently, but certainly in the past. And when I was much younger and I didn't know what was going on, it was very scary. It was very terrifying because you really unable to move, right? And that's just because you've woken up, but you know, your spinal cord hasn't kind of caught up yet. And so you have this lag phase and you're still in that state of paralysis. Now, most people know or think of REM phase as the phase of sleep where you're dreaming. And this is certainly true, but just to be Um, accurate here, you can dream in all phases of sleep. So you can have non-REM dreams as well, and you do, right? It's just that most of your dreams are occurring during the REM phase. And also those are the ones we tend to remember, okay? But you are dreaming in different phases as well. Well, I ask patients um, why they think that the paralysis is happening during REM. And basically, um, nobody knows for sure, but possibly it's just to keep you out of trouble, right? Because if in your dream you were running away from our favorite saber-toothed tiger and you actually ran off the bed, clunk, right? Uh, You would hurt yourself. Or if you were fighting off the saber-toothed tiger, then you might have to explain, you know, the damage to your bed partner the next day, right? Oops, I didn't mean to give you that black eye. I was fighting off the saber-toothed tiger, I promise, right? So it's probably a safety feature so you don't act out your dreams and you stay safe during your sleep, okay? But nonetheless, we have this paralysis and the REM phase is thought of as a a phase that is really important for cognition, for memory consolidation, and now also for processing of emotions. And in fact, um, it's really important to have a solid REM phase to help you process traumatic events. And if you don't, then there might be some problems later on uh, with that, okay? So REM phase is really particularly important. If we thought of the non-REM N3 stage as the body repair phase, you could think of the REM phase as the brain work phase, brain repair phase, okay? Uh, Where we're consolidating memory and really kind of having all those cognitive processes consolidated, learning processes consolidated. So very, very important. And as I said, then we cycle back and forth, one, two, three, REM, one, two, three, REM, one, two, three, REM. Now, just back to the nocturnal dipping. The brain actually consumes a lot of energy. It is really very demanding metabolically. It consumes about 20% of your total 
intake. Okay. And when you're stressed, maybe even a bit more, 25%. But when you sleep, you actually allow the brain to be less metabolically active. So it's just kind of like this little R&R phase for your brain. So there's just less um, energy consumption during sleep, particularly during the deep sleep phase. Because as I told you, your blood pressure has dropped, your heart rate is at its lowest for the day, your uh, breathing as well is nice and even and deep, right, and slow. So you're not consuming as much energy with this nocturnal dipping. However, some people have what we call blunted nocturnal dipping. This means they're not able to get at least a 10% drop in their you know, daily average heart rate and or blood pressure. Okay, So instead of having the lowest heart rate and blood pressure for the entire 24-hour period, they don't quite show a drop in those vital signs. And we call that nocturnal dipping. The reason it's really important is that it's associated with a lot of risks. It's associated with increased risk for cardiac dysfunction, right? So you have um, the heart working a lot harder when you have blunted nocturnal dipping. You also have increased risk for strokes, increased risk for dementia, if you have blunted nocturnal dipping, right? And you might be at risk for increased kidney damage, right? And also other autoimmune uh, problems when you have blunted dipping, which means you don't quite dip, you know, that 10% or more during the deep sleep phase. And this is a reflection probably of increased oxidative stress on the body. Now, you know, some studies have even shown that with every 5% decrease in dipping, there is a 20% increase in cardiovascular mortality, okay? So it's a really significant thing to look out for, and that's something I feel we're not actually picking up on with our patients. It's actually a simple thing to test for because we're really just kind of checking the blood pressure and also um, the heart rate. You know, you probably will check your respiratory rate um, as well with it. It's kind of something you could lump into a sleep study. But it makes a big difference uh, if you notice that decreased blunting, especially in certain populations. So, for example, African-American patients are at much, much, much higher risk for um, this blunted dipping. And this might affect their increased risk for hypertension, okay? So if we're not looking at this and not picking this up early and appropriately, we're gonna wait until it's too late, right? When there's more damage to the body. All right, and um, the other thing with the, the dipping as well is, it's correlated to hypoxia and decreased blood flow. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, okay? Before I get to that, I want to talk about the particular architecture of sleep. This is because patients will come to me and say, well, you know, Dr. Lai, I know I don't sleep enough during the week, 
But, you know, I make it up on the weekends. I, I get a few more hours. I sleep in and, you know, I'm good, right? But it's not quite what they think because sleep has a very particular architecture. So I told you we have these 90 to 110 minute cycles where you go through one, two, three REM, one, two, three REM, one, two, three REM, right? However, the earlier part of the night, the earlier part of your sleep cycles are going to be prioritized towards the N3 deep sleep phase. So you're getting more N3 earlier on in the night. And then the second half of your sleep is going to be prioritized towards REM. So in the beginning, you don't have very much time spent in REM. But as the night progresses, you're going to spend longer and longer periods in REM sleep. So most of your REM sleep is skewed towards the second half of your total sleep time. So if you think of someone who is, and I've had plenty of these patients who come to me, and they're only sleeping four or five hours a night, okay, whether it's from shift work or, you know, other complications, or they just have insomnia, have difficulty falling asleep, they're sleeping, you know, about four to five hours a night. Now think about this, because that first half of the night, let's say of your eight hour cycle, is going to be mostly the deep sleep phase. Now, if you have the one and two, but you have your, your threes there, your N3s there, your deep sleep uh, phases there. And then as we hit, let's say, hour five, six, seven, the REM phases are going to go longer and longer while the N3 phases are shortening, okay? So you definitely see this asymmetric structure in sleep. So if someone's only sleeping four hours, then you can imagine that they're getting their N1, N2, N3, but they're really not getting any REM, okay? So they may have some tissue repair, some body regeneration repair, but they're not getting the, yeah, the cognitive stuff, right? And so they're not really able to consolidate the things that they've learned. Memory is going to be a problem, for example, right? And as they have more and more sleep debt and more and more of this REM debt, you're going to see a lot more cognitive dysfunction in those patients. So you can't really just make up sleep because the architecture of sleep is asymmetric. So for example, uh, it takes, there was a study here that showed that it takes four days to recover from one hour of lost sleep, four days and nine days to eliminate sleep debt okay there was another study here and the second study more recent one i believe and uh, they had people come in and the first four days they're just kind of benchmarking their sleep times and so forth and then for the following 10 days they cut their sleep by 30 percent okay for 10 days so they restricted their sleep time by 30% for 10 days. And then they gave everyone uh, a week to sleep as much as they wanted. They didn't have any wake times. They could just sleep as much as they wanted. Now they noted, of course, during the period of sleep restriction that 
the mental um, faculties were declining and they had slower reaction time, right? More behavioral problems and so forth. However, when they allowed them to catch up on their sleep and just sleep as much as they wanted to sort of make up for that period of sleep restriction, they did see an improvement in the cognitive function, but it never returned to normal for a week, right? And that's how long the study lasts. It was actually a three-week total study. So after the 10 days, they just watched them for seven days. And by the end of seven days, they had still not fully recovered their cognitive functioning as compared to the beginning, right? So it may take a lot longer to kind of make up for sleep debt. And sometimes people even wonder if you could truly make up for sleep debt. So you can't just, you know, sleep a bit more on the weekend. And we've also noted that those people who don't sleep enough during the week, but try to make it up on the weekend, they don't correct the metabolic dysfunction that comes with lack of sleep, right? And for example, they are still at a much higher risk for gaining weight. So you don't see that mitigated by the makeup sleep on the weekend. So we can't really easily make up sleep. All right. So now I want to talk to you about something that's very common in my patient population, and that is sleep apnea. So apnea just simply means that you stop breathing, right? And sleep apnea, you stop breathing in your sleep. And it's amazing how many people who come to me um, have this issue that has been undiagnosed. So many people have gone years with this problem and not been diagnosed, okay? And the issue is when you have sleep apnea, well, there are two general categories. You have obstructive sleep apnea or central sleep apnea. And sometimes you have mixture of both, right? Elements of both in the same patient. The most common is obstructive sleep apnea. And this is because, especially when you have your patient lying on his or her back, right? Uh, remember we go into that REM phase and what happens in REM? Yes, you have that paralysis and your muscle tone just kind of becomes totally flaccid, correct? So you're lying on your back, for example, imagine that. So all the tissues and all the musculature in your airway, in your throat is going to be flaccid and relaxed, okay? And some of this tissue may actually obstruct the airway so that you're not able to get in air to your lungs, okay? And that's going to create a situation where you don't get enough oxygen uh, into your bloodstream and two, most importantly, your brain. Now, of course, this is a dire situation when you don't get enough oxygen to your brain. So guess what? Your brain wakes you up. Wake up, all right? And the patient wakes up. They never remember it. They never remember it, okay? How do we know? Because when you look at patients' uh, sleep studies in the sleep labs, for example, some patients have had a 100 or more awakenings during the night. And of course, when you ask them, they go, no, I slept through the whole night, right? They never remember this, okay? So, I mean, again, when you have lack of sleep, memory is one of the first things that starts to suffer. So that's not very surprising, right? So... 
the body wakes them up. Okay, then inevitably, because they're so tired, they drift off and they nod off and they fall asleep again. And then they get more obstruction, no air going into their lungs. And then guess what? Wake up again. So as I said, people could have as many as, you know, a hundred plus awakenings or more in the night, right? And they're basically not getting any sleep. And certainly the architecture of their sleep is severely disrupted. Okay, the main problem here is lack of oxygen. So we're in a hypoxic situation and neurons, the cells in your brain, are very sensitive to oxygen lack. All right, and when this persists over time, that stress is going to cause neuronal death. All right, that's what's happening if you have undiagnosed and untreated sleep apnea over a long period of time, you have neurons start to die. So when you think of an ischemic stroke, which is the most common form of stroke, it basically is a lack of blood supply, blood flow to certain areas in the brain. And if you don't rescue those areas uh, within a short time period, then the brain cells, the neurons in those brain areas start to die. And it's really very hard. I know there's a lot of arguments as to whether we can make new brain cells, make new neurons or not. Um, whatever it might be, maybe we can. It's not like you can do it easily, right? Because we wouldn't be having this debate of, yes, you can, no, you can't, yes, you can. If it were just obviously happening, oh, look, some dead neurons, oh, look, they're regenerating, right? The fact that there is this controversy is because really it's hard to tell. And there are some labs now that think that uh, we do get some neural regeneration, we do make more new neurons, but uh, certainly that's not going to happen in the context of increased inflammation, ongoing inflammation, and ongoing hypoxia or anoxia, right? Not enough blood flow to the brain. And this damage to the brain from lack of oxygen is oftentimes irreversible, okay? So if you think of, like I said, a stroke where you're not getting enough blood flow, and if you don't rescue those areas of the brain soon enough, that would that part of the brain dies, right? And then we have these deficits. So someone who is uh, uh, diagnosed with sleep apnea and refuses, for example, to use the CPAP device to kind of help them breathe better during the night, they're actually subjecting themselves to, you know, situations akin to tiny little strokes throughout the night, right? Because you're just not getting oxygen to the brain. And as I said, the brain is very, very sensitive to oxygen lack, okay? So with sleep apnea, if it is treated, then a lot of times you will be prescribed uh, a device and the whole point of the device is it provides a continuous uh, or a, a positive airway pressure uh, to stent open the tissues in your airway. So we're providing a gentle pressure of air and that kind of keeps the tissues apart and allows for flow of air into your lungs, right? And these would be your continuous positive airway pressure devices, the CPAP devices. Sometimes you have BiPAP devices, right? 
but the whole point is to stent open the airway and to help you get oxygen, clear the airway and help you get oxygen to your body. It's very important if you have been diagnosed with sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea especially, to use your CPAP devices regularly and consistently. It's very common for me to see patients, oh yes, I was diagnosed a year ago, two years ago. I hate the device and they've never used it or they used it for two days and they hated it, all right? And I was like, okay, you may hate it, but you need to save some brain cells, okay? Unless you have a lot of brain cells and you feel like you could lose a few, right? I mean, completely up to you, but my advice is, uh, I'd be prioritizing those brain cells. And generally, when someone is starting off with their CPAP devices, I will tell you, my experience with my patients is they hate it, hate it, hate it, love it. Okay, it's hate, hate, hate it. Ooh, I love this thing. And then they are never parted with it, okay? Because suddenly, when they do get enough sleep, it's a whole new world. Alright, so if you have just been diagnosed or you've been resisting using your CPAP devices, just be persistent. I tell patients, give it a month, give it six weeks. And generally within that period, most people adapt very well to it and they really start to love those devices. Okay, we also have central sleep apnea. And that's really a lack of a respiratory drive. That's more a brain dysfunction thing. And there is not this connection between the brain and the muscles of breathing, all right? And so there's not even a drive to take in a breath, all right? So that's a lot harder to treat. And in some patients, there's a mixture of both, right? But the most common one is obstructive sleep apnea. And I've certainly also seen patients with what is generally termed uh, obesity hypoventilation syndrome. I had a patient who had such a thick chest wall uh, from fat mass that he really had trouble uh, really expanding his lungs and taking in air. And so whether it was daytime or nighttime, he really couldn't get enough air in. And when he lost weight, there was such a dramatic uh, improvement. He used to walk around with an oxygen tank when I first met him and then, you know, he's never gone back to that since. And on CT, you could see a huge reduction in the chest wall, right? And that was actually a huge burden on him so he couldn't even take a breath, okay? But again, the most common type of sleep apnea in patients would be the obstructive sleep apnea. Now, with obstructive sleep apnea, because it is a persistent stress to the body due to lack of oxygen, that's a pretty bad thing, right? You don't want to not have oxygen. So that's a very, very huge stress on the body. So it stresses the heart, it stresses your entire cardiovascular system. And with the obstructive sleep apnea untreated, then we're definitely going to see what? Blunted nocturnal dipping. <clears throat> Remember, I said your blood pressure is supposed to drop in N3, non-REM sleep, your heart rate, right? But because there's so much stress and there's so much struggle from your body to get that oxygen, your heart, your whole cardiovascular system is all pumped up. 
So you don't lose that sympathetic drive. You don't blunt it during. You don't drop it during the night. And so you have this raised sympathetic drive. You have a high heart rate at,、uh, relative to what other people would have at that point in their sleep cycle, and you have a high blood pressure, right? And so you would then have that blunted nocturnal dipping. In addition, undiagnosed or untreated sleep apnea is one of the very common causes of hypertension that is resistant to medication. So I can't tell you how many patients I have seen. They come to me. They're on three meds. Blood pressure is still one fifty, one sixty over ninety or a hundred, right? And they say, "Oh, I've been like this for years. My doctor says it's just genetic." There's not. I'm like, "You need a sleep study." And oh, I'm not big enough to need a sleep. I'm mean, you need a sleep study because again, people like to go by how they think they look. Okay, I don't look like I would need a CPAP device, and I've certainly sent a lot of normal weight people for sleep studies, and they have come back with the worst sleep studies ever, ever. But how is it possible? It's not like I'm that big. All right, it's an anatomy thing, and you know, really, three medications at max dose. We're not doing anything, and no one checked for sleep apnea. You got to be joking, right? So I always send them for a sleep study, and it comes back positive, even if they look skinny, right? Again, really hate this going by looks thing because we're missing everything, right? So okay, send the patient, especially if they have resistant hypertension or malignant hypertension, especially in women. Right, you don't want to miss the sleep apnea, the obstructive sleep apnea, and if untreated, what's this going to lead to? Arrhythmias. Most common cause for atrial fibrillation is hypertension from undiagnosed sleep. Apnea. So I get tons, tons of patients with atrial fibrillation, which is an irregular、uh, rhythm in their heart. Right? Quite common in my patient population. And guess what? They all get a sleep study. Okay? Because if we have undiagnosed sleep apnea and we don't treat that, and the Blood pressure is going to remain high. They have blunted nocturnal dipping, and it doesn't matter how many times、uh, you can ablate them or you can give them medications. They're still at risk for future episodes of atrial fibrillation. So mandatory atrial fib. Go get a sleep study, especially these days, right? A lot of the sleep studies you used to have to go to a hotel, a special sleep lab, but nowadays. You can get that done at home. They send you the kit, or you just go pick it up. So it's relatively easy and non-intrusive. So really, just get the sleep study. Don't resist. And if you have been diagnosed, do start using your CPAP device. All right. Okay. Yeah, one of my pet peeves because if we don't solve that problem, then the patient's never going to. Uh, get rid of the metabolic dysfunction, right? Okay, let's go on to talk about、um, how certain substances impact your sleep. So obviously, everybody knows about caffeine, right? And how that's a stimulant and that keeps you awake. Well, actually, your sleep drive 
is largely from the accumulation of a chemical called adenosine in your brain. So in the beginning of the day, right after you've woken up, you don't have a lot of adenosine. But as you go through the day, you start to accumulate adenosine. And it's this adenosine that is causing that sleep drive, making you feel sleepy. Actually, caffeine binds to the adenosine receptor, right? Competes with it and binds to the adenosine receptor. And that's how it manages to give you that sense of wakefulness rather than just wanting to go to sleep, okay? Uh, obviously, everybody reacts differently to caffeine. Most people are aware of the effects of caffeine in their own bodies. You know, some people can have caffeine late into the day and nothing happens and they're fine. Uh, and some people are very sensitive and maybe past noon or past one <coughs> in the afternoon, they have to shut off the java, okay? Now, how about things like um, the sleep aids, okay? Because a lot of people come to me and they have trouble sleeping and so-and-so prescribed this or that. The most commonly prescribed drugs that I have seen for insomnia would fall in the class of benzodiazepines. So these would be things like Valium and Ativan, okay? Some of you may have heard of them. And so patients will come to me and they'll say, I just take a tad bit, a touch of a Valium or Ativan, and it just helps me go to sleep, okay? So benzodiazepines are actually similar to alcohol in the sense that they are sedatives, they are CNS depressants, okay? So they are likely, yes, to make you unconscious, okay? So you'll fall asleep. But the problem with them is that they tend to actually mess with your REM sleep, okay? So they kind of annihilate your REM phase, and so you don't have really the REM phase cognitive restructuring and memory consolidation and so forth. So maybe you're unconscious and you have one, two, three phases of sleep, but you don't really get the REM phases when you're using benzodiazepines, sedatives such as Ativan, Valium, when you're using alcohol as a nightcap. So not a good idea to use those substances, right? Sleep deprivation is really kind of prevalent throughout our population, see it everywhere, but most people don't recognize that they are sleep deprived. I'm fine, I'm never tired, right? Well, I have a couple of questions for them usually. One of them is, <clears throat> when your head hits the pillow, how long does it take for you to fall asleep? Now, if they tell me, oh, I don't even remember, I'm out like a light the minute my head hits the pillow. Yeah, you're probably sleep deprived. Now, then there are those people who say, oh, you know, I'm tossing and turning for an hour. I can't seem to fall asleep. They may still be sleep deprived, but, you know, and, and that's because they can't turn off their thoughts. And so they're constantly ruminating and they're unable to switch off their thoughts and fall asleep, right? They're too wrapped up. Uh, so that's a different story. But if you just, you know, hit the pillow and you're out like a light, it's a good chance you are sleep deprived. The other question I ask them is, if you're attending a boring talk, a boring lecture, 
Um, are you likely to nod off and fall asleep? If the answer is yes, you are likely sleep deprived. Because if you weren't sleep deprived and you were at a boring lecture, then you just be thinking, oh, you know, when is this going to end? What will we do this weekend? Oh, maybe I'll go visit my friend. So your mind starts to wander and you really shouldn't be falling asleep. If you're falling asleep during a boring session, during a boring class, for example, or a boring meeting, and there's plenty of those, uh, that's likely uh, because you're actually quite sleep deprived and you may not know this. And the scary thing is there's all these people driving around who are sleep deprived and they don't know it. And they have these nanoseconds where they fall asleep right and they're so quick and so fast they're not even aware that they've fallen asleep okay. a, a story that i always tell my patient is one that um you know i was i was told this by uh one of my oldest patients okay and he said in his youth oldest not oldest in terms of age just the longest right so when he was younger, he used to drive those big trucks across country, right? And they have, you know, these truck drivers have pretty demanding schedules. They don't get a lot of sleep. It's kind of scary. So he was driving a truck across the country and he said, I was just in the middle of the country, you know, when the roads are just going on and on, straight roads forever. You can see 10 miles ahead of you. And he's just driving and he said, all of a sudden, a red car drops from the sky in front of me, lands in front of me, I slam on the brakes, and I narrowly miss hitting him. Now, this is not a UFO story, nothing dropped from the sky. He had been asleep for miles, and he didn't know this. Right? He woke up just in time to see this car in front of him. But, you know, lots of people actually fall asleep at the wheel, and they're not able to know this, right? We know that drinking under the influence and driving, I mean, driving under the influence, right? We know that if you're drinking alcohol, you shouldn't really be driving because you have a delayed response time. So you're like driving and you're like, hey, watch out for that tree, right? So your response time is delayed or slowed. I would argue that um, sleep deprivation and driving is even worse. And it's because there is no response. You never even see the tree. Okay? So people go to sleep in those microseconds and they never even see the tree or whatever it is that they may hit. So very, very dangerous if you're sleep deprived please don't get on the road. But I see these people, you know, just kind of push through, whether they're driving long distance or they're just so sleep deprived on a daily basis and then they have these commutes to work. And I certainly was in that position a long time ago when I was doing my residency. You know, we had to stay up all night. You have these hard, you know, really tough nights in the ICU, in the unit. And then the next morning we had a clinic that we had to drive to for, you know, it was probably a 45 minute drive there and then a 45 minute drive back later in the day. Now, nobody ever had a problem driving there because they would all tank up with the coffee and so forth, 
right? But driving back to the hospital from the clinic, I can't tell you how many calls. When I was chief res resident, I would get all these calls. So-and-so uh, drove into a ditch. And so can you cover her patients? And um, can you send for, can you help with AA? Because my car smashed a pole. I got all these calls and would always be on that return trip. And I was so terrified that I would get into an accident. So there was a trick that I used to do because, you know, in those days didn't have a lot of money. I would wind down my window and I would hold a $20 bill like this while I was driving. Let me tell you, I never lost a single note. I never fell asleep. Don't do that. It's a terrible thing to do, but it saved me, I have to say. But don't ever do that. Not good. Stupid thing to do. But I was young. Okay. But it was, did keep me awake. Right? Okay. Yeah, if you're motivated enough, right? So, don't drive when you're sleep deprived. Now, onward, let's talk about the circadian rhythm. All right? You hear this a lot. And this is basically your day-night cycle. Okay? We all actually respond to day-night cycles. And our whole body is kind of working along the day-night cycle. All right. So if we were to look down uh, from above you over your head and we saw your two eyeballs, okay? So if we looked from above, you would see that the right eyeball is going to actually pinch off in the back into this long, narrow-looking uh, cylindrical tube. And that tube would go backwards into the brain towards the left back side of your brain. And that is actually your optic nerve coming out uh, of your brain, right? Coming out of the eyeball and then progressing into the brain to the back contralateral side, the other side of your brain. And the same thing happens on the left eyeball. Left eyeball pinches off into this little tube, which is the uh, optic nerve again, going back and diagonally backwards and towards the right back side of your brain. Where the two optic nerves cross, that is called the optic chiasm. And chiasm simply means crossing, all right? Above that sits something called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, we'll just call it the SCN, but you can see where the name comes from, supra above the chiasm, okay? So suprachiasmatic nucleus. And that is known, the SCN is known as the primary clock setter for your body. So, you know, when light enters your eye, hits the retina, and you know, there's a, a, a nerve transmission, right? Uh, going down the optic nerve. Remember, the SCN sits above that chiasm and it can detect when you sense light or not. In the absence of light, the SCN is able to signal to the pineal gland to secrete a hormone called melatonin. Yes, the famous melatonin in the absence of light. And as such, your SCN acts as the primary clock setter for the day-night cycle, your circadian rhythm in your body. 
Okay, let's just briefly touch on melatonin. Could do a whole episode on melatonin if you want. You got to request it though, all right? So send me a request. Um, very interesting hormone. But melatonin, first thing I want to say is that it is the hormone of darkness. I love that. It is the hormone of darkness. It is not the hormone of sleep. And a lot of times patients will come to me and they'll say, well, you know, um, I have insomnia and my doctor told me to try melatonin. Well, it's not really going to help insomnia, but if you have a clock that is disrupted, it may help, right? It is the hormone of darkness. And here's why. And not the hormone of sleep, okay? Here's why it's the hormone of darkness. Because really all species have melatonin, okay? So it's not unique to humans. So animals, for example, they all have melatonin, right? And when melatonin rises in the bloodstream, right, uh, in the nighttime, it signals to the organism that it is now dark that it is night. And if you are a bat, for example, that is the time to go hunting and blood sucking, right? That's what bats do at night, okay? Now, if you are a mouse, that's when you come out to play because mice are nocturnal, right? They sleep during the day. So if you are a human being, then it's time to rest and go to sleep. So it signals darkness, and then depending on your species, you're going to do whatever you're supposed to do in the dark, okay? So if you are a nocturnal predator, that's when you go hunting. That's when you get your meals. But as a human, that's when you sleep, okay? So it signals to you that it is now dark, and then you do whatever you're supposed to do in the dark. So for us, that's supposed to be sleep. So melatonin, obviously I told you, is only secreted by the pineal gland when, what? There's absence of light and your SCN detects that and signals to the pineal gland, you can now secrete the melatonin. So we're quite sensitive then to light exposure. And you've heard this probably that the blue end of the light spectrum from your devices, from your screens, right? Uh, from, let's say, fluorescent lighting, that will disrupt your melatonin uh, secretion because, you know, it's nighttime, but we have all these artificial lights going on. So it kind of fools your brain. And part of our sleep disruption may come from that. So obviously you want to, you know, kind of decrease your exposure to the blue lights and you have these special glasses and special screens. Now you can dim them, but the idea is to decrease exposure to light at night, okay? It's not just the pineal gland that secretes melatonin though. Your bone marrow, for example, secretes melatonin. Skin secretes melatonin. Lots of other places. You, GI tract secretes melatonin. You knew I would come to your GI tract, right? Okay. 
because the second clock setter, I told you the primary clock setter is what? The SCN. The, there are other oscillators, right, for, the, for your, your circadian rhythm, other clocks that exist, but the, second, the most important secondary one would be your GI tract and the timing of your meals. You are setting your clock by the timing of your meals, which is why with our patients, we are relentless about the timing interval because they come to me and they have metabolic dysfunction and they want a metabolic reset. And if we don't reset the clock, no metabolic reset for you, right? So besides having the sleep period consolidated, and we'll talk about how to prioritize that, um, we also want to make sure the meal times are consistent and they happen in the, during the day, okay? So really don't like a nocturnal eating in general. And sure, you know, you have dinner when it's a little dark outside, but you don't wanna have um, your meals when it's very close to bedtime or in the middle of the night, and that does happen, you know, some sleep disorders like nocturnal um, binge eating disorder. I've had patients with that, okay? So that's abnormal. Okay, and we really want to prioritize setting the clock. The timing of the meals would be very important. Your liver senses, your pancreas senses, and you know when you're having the meals every time you eat, right? And that resets your clock. One way that I explain this to my patient too, because it's confusing. Like, what, what do you mean all these clocks? It's a general analogy, but you could think of it as you have U.S. time. Right, So if you're living in the U.S., you're under U.S. time. But then you have local and regional time zones. So you have Eastern Standard Time, for example. You have Pacific Time. You have Mountain Time, Central Time, right? So these different time zones within U.S. time. So you have that SCN as your primary clock setter, but you have other oscillators that will help kind of set the clock in different parts of the organism. And it's really important for you to coordinate all these clocks. Every cell in your body has clock genes because you know every part of your body needs to know the agenda. They need to know the schedule. When are we eating and digesting food? When are we prioritizing energy to the muscles and to the brain? And when can we all get together and do some repair work, right? And if you didn't have that schedule and that was disrupted, then you're going to have metabolic dysfunction. Okay, so there's lots of other things I could say. I mean, if you have disruption of your circadian rhythm, then your metabolism, as I said, goes off. Your immune function is going to be off as well because all your immune cells, again, they have clock genes. They really respect that circadian rhythm. And if you're not keeping good you know, uh, sort of time in your body, physiologically, that's going to be a struggle for your body to stay healthy. All right. Um, so in the end, I mean, I've gone on long enough. I could probably go on a bit more on sleep. But, you know, I asked my patients in the end, okay, why is it so important for us to sleep? And then I tell them, you know, about the studies with the mice, and you might have heard of them as well, right? 
where they looked at mice and generally the lifespan of mice would be about two to three years. Three years old is kind of long, maybe two, two and a half years, all right? And um, if you took mice and you deprived them of REM sleep, okay, they actually would live five weeks as opposed to two years. So that's a drastic shortening of the lifespan. And if you deprive them of all sleep from the time they were born, then they're really dead within a week. So sleep is vital for your survival. And then of course, there are people who say, well, you know, that was a mice studies, that's animals, that's not generalizable. <coughs> we do have people who have a rare disorder called familial fatal insomnia. And basically, um, once they start the insomnia phase, they're dead within 18 months of developing the insomnia. Okay, and this, I said familial because it's genetic and it runs in the family. So it's rare and there's sporadic cases and those are due to, we think due to prions, which are these proteins that kind of affect the brain in a, in, in a weird way. All right, and those are also very, very, very rare. But we do have familial fatal insomnia and these people can't sleep and as a result, they get sicker and sicker, and within 18 months, they're dead. And before I go on, no, you do not have familial fatal insomnia. I've been seeing patients for a long time. They always go, she can read my mind. No, not really, I've just done this a long time. So I know that lots of people are going, oh my God, I probably have that. No, you don't, very rare. And really, if you did have true familial uh, fatal insomnia, it would be obvious to lots of people because, you know, you start having huge memory gaps, a lot of cognitive dysfunction. People can't really do their normal work. And they start having delusions and hallucinations. Okay? So I trust that you're not hallucinating. No, you are not hallucinating this episode either. All right? So no, you don't have it, so chill out. Okay, but we can see that if they're not sleeping, because they, the, when you have that, the FFI, the familial fatal insomnia, you don't sleep, okay? And you don't sleep at all. And you might have N1, N2, but you don't go into N3, you don't have REM, okay? And uh, you're dead within 18 months, most people are, okay? So shortened lifespan, and they have severe metabolic dysfunction, severe cardiovascular uh, uh, problems, right? And like I said, they start having signs of dementia and hallucinations and delusions. Some of them will start having seizures, that kind of stuff, okay? So profoundly affects the functioning of your body. And this suggests that probably like the mice, if we were deprived of all sleep, yeah, it would significantly shorten our lifespan. And, you know, uh, sleep deprivation is a form of torture that has been used uh, by different regimes, okay? And they use it for a specific reason because 
it truly damages your body. Um, doesn't leave scars though, right? So it's a, it's a way to, to torture someone and maybe not leave any signs of that. Okay. All right. What can you do to improve your sleep? That's the big question I get asked, right? Look, sleep hygiene is something you're really going to have to commit to and prioritize. It's not going to happen immediately, especially if you've had problems with sleep for a long time. So number one is I find that most of my patients just don't get to bed on time. They linger, linger, linger. And I totally understand because at the end of the day, you know, it's just that little time for yourself. A lot of my patients feel like it's their time and it's their downtime and the kids are in bed. Everybody's tucked in and they've had their needs met and you just want to have a little time to yourself and you just don't feel like going to bed. It feels like such a waste, although it's probably the best thing you could do for yourself, right? So number one is get to bed on time. Earlier I talked about the, oh, I don't sleep enough during the uh, weekdays, but I you know, make it up on the weekends. And we saw how you really can't make it up on the weekends, okay? <coughs> In fact, think about this, okay? If, for example, you normally wake up at six in the morning during the weekdays, and then on weekends you sleep in and now you wake up at nine, okay? Nine in the morning. Well, actually, you know what you've done? You just went from the East Coast to the West Coast. You had a time zone change, okay? And eventually, basically your body's gonna be going, what's going on? So you will experience jet lag whether you know it or not, okay? So now you shift it, okay, three hours later. And then on Monday, when you go back to your 6 a.m. wake time, oof, you fly back to the East Coast and you keep doing that and your body's having a hard time adjusting. You're constantly having this jet lag, right? And of course, if you're waking up at a later time, then you're eating at a later time. So one of the first things we do is we tell our patients, we're going to correct your metabolic dysfunction. You got to hit the sleep. There's there's just no way around that, okay? So I need you to commit to fix sleep times, fix sleep times and wake times, okay? You gotta fix that, preferably in the eight hour range, seven and a half, okay, you know? I know, different phases of your life, it's, dif it's difficult to manage, but generally you at least want to hit the seven and work your way towards the eight, okay? But fix those times and they stay consistent all week, okay? They stay consistent Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And we keep the meal times. We are very consistent with the meal times, all right? So I actually have them schedule in the meal times as well. I have scheduled meal times and I'm very consistent. I'm traveling and I am on my own time zone. I did not switch. And we'll talk about that in a second. So you want to fix the sleep times. And then when it comes to the actual bedtime uh, routine, you want to try and develop some consistent winding down routine. So an hour before you go to bed, you want to minimize the lights, you know, especially the blue types of lights, right? You want to start to wind down. So maybe you're not 
um, you know, doing something overly stimulating. You're not watching, let's say, a horror movie or something like that. And you're slowly allowing yourself to wind down from the day. And one of my favorite things is to have patients just read from an old-fashioned book. Okay? Remember those? Right? Uh, or just maybe to sit around and listen to relaxing music. Whatever your own routine is, okay, maybe you want to do a short meditation uh, session before or a body scan before you go to bed. All right. You want to have a consistent routine. In terms of your sleep conditions, you don't want it too hot, you don't want it too cold. Ideally, sort of 68 in that range, 66 to 68 degrees Fahrenheit in your room. And you want to make sure that you have blackout curtains over the windows. And actually, even if you have those, I still ask my patients to get the blackout eye masks, okay? Because, you know, those really kind of seal out the light. And the patients who tell me, oh, I have the blackout drapes, when they get the eye masks, yeah, they're unwilling to give that up, okay? Because it really seals out the light. Okay, so when it's time to go to bed, I have them use that. If there's a noise situation, they can also have a white noise machine or earplugs or something like that. Um, if you wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, I just suggest that all the night lights are sort of the reddish or yellowy ones and not the blue fluorescent type ones. Okay, so you kind of have to shop around to find the right kind of night lights and then go back to sleep. What if you have insomnia? So a lot of times people with insomnia have a hard time unhooking their thoughts from the day so that they can relax and fall asleep. So commonly I have them do something like read a boring book. So you might want to pull out your tax code and start reading that. That's very helpful. And if you still remember what a phone book looks like, right? The most useful thing for a phone book these days is to pull it out when you can't sleep and start reading off from A. And see if you can make it to B. You probably won't. So read from your phone book. Okay? I think there's a website too that's called Boring Books for Bedtime that I used to ask my patients to go to and they kind of read you boring bedtime stories. So such a great idea, right? So you could try that. I'll put on a very boring lecture and, um, you know, see if that will put you to sleep. Your old trigonometry uh, textbook, that's a good thing to read, right? Especially if you hate it trigonometry that will put you to sleep immediately. But essentially you want a task that keeps your mind somewhat occupied but not too much. Right? So some mindless tasks like counting backwards in sevens from a hundred. Some tasks like that that occupies you but you know not too much and then it'll help you fall asleep. If you still cannot fall asleep then don't sit there staring at the ceiling because you're just going to get more hyped up about it. So Go up and, like I said, find the boring book. It's not your favorite mystery that you're going to be reading now, right? Get a very boring book and just try to read that and fall asleep to that. Generally, if a patient says that he or she has struggled with insomnia for a long period of time, and they come to me and they say, I really can't do more than five hours sleep. I'm very tired. I want to sleep more, but I'm struggling with that. 
then what I tend to do is sleep restriction. This is a tough, tough process, and you want to work with your doctor on doing this. It's also mm, not quite safe, especially if you have to drive and you know do things like that, operate machinery, not good. But the essence of it is that if someone tells me, I only sleep five hours. So I say, what time do you go to bed? They go, well, I try to go to bed at 10, but you know, by two o'clock, three o'clock, I'm awake. So I basically tell them, what time do you have to wake up in the morning? You know, I have to be up at five to go to work. Okay, so then what I have them do is, you're going to bed at 12.30. So a little under the five hours. 12.30, I said, yeah, you cannot fall asleep before, you cannot take naps, you go to bed at 12.30. And I try to get them to sleep at 12.30 and then wake up without fail, must wake up at five, okay? Now, if they are able to sleep through that period for a few days, then I'll add 15 minutes. So instead of 12.30, they can go to bed at 12.15, okay? And if they're still sleeping through the whole night, then I'll add another 15. I work my way back, all right? So I severely restrict the sleep because when they finally sleep, I want them to sleep through that period and train them to sleep through that period. And then I slowly extend the time. This takes some time. It takes patience. You should work with a doctor or provider when you're doing this. And you shouldn't be, you know, driving or operating machinery, for example. But it's actually quite effective. I've had several people who've had insomnia 20 years, 30 years, and come, and then when we've done this, and they're on track, okay? So, but you have to be really um, precise with this, and you can't, you know, you can't be wimpy about it. And it's actually very hard to do, okay? So, so I just severely restrict the sleep, and I know it's a little bit paradoxical, but then I slowly build back the sleep. All right. So that's what I do for those people with insomnia. You could also look uh, for a sleep psychologist to help you out there. Right. Um, people ask me about melatonin only if you have maybe a jet lag issue or a shift disorder issue. And it just may help you kind of set your clock if you've had uh, clock disruptions. And most people have had clock disruptions, circadian disruptions, and they don't know it. So it's worth giving it a shot if you've had that. Now, in terms of shift work, uh, with the, our patients with shift work, we help them as much as possible plan the shifts. I think most places are quite cognizant of the problems of shift work. And so the kind of, if you have rotating shifts, you know, you kind of move clockwise. Most people know to move clockwise. So you do a morning shift, then when you switch, you switch to the afternoon shift and then when you do a further shift you could do evenings or nights right you go in that direction what you don't want to do is start with an evening shift and then shift to a morning you know schedule right or or afternoons and go backwards you want to follow the clock and go clockwise if you're doing rotating shift work uh, we generally tell our patients look you know those of us who are in jobs where you have to do shifts just pay your dues, but by the time you reach 40, I'm telling my patients, you gotta have a plan. You have to have a plan. You pay your dues. You know, if you're a policeman, a fireman, 
if you're in the military, if you're in the medical field, we all have to do shift work. Okay, and we pay our dues. And then when you hit your 40s, let the young ones do it. Okay, you need a plan so that you move to a consistent sleep schedule and a consistent day-night schedule. And you want to prioritize a normal, natural circadian rhythm. Okay, but while they're doing the shift work, usually our coaches work with them to time their meals accordingly. Remember, the meals also help you set the clock. Um, so it's very individualized. It really depends on the patient's particular shifts. And we try to help plan out the circadian rhythm uh, as best as we can for that patient. Now, what about travel? Because I have a lot of patients who are for example, consultants, so they live on the East Coast and they travel within the week to the West Coast every week, okay? So there's a lot of jet lag, a lot of shifts in time zones. So, you know, if you're within the U.S., it's fairly easy, okay? If you're within continental U.S., then just stick to your time zone. The biggest difference within the continental U.S. would be from the East Coast to the West Coast, so keep your time zone. That means by 8 o'clock at night in the West Coast, you should be in bed. That's 11 o'clock back on the East Coast, right? And that's really still that approximately that, that day-night, you know, kind of schedule, right? And keep your meals consistent. So we work with our patients to keep that. And then anywhere in between, it's not going to be that big a gap. So it's easier. So if you're within the continental U.S., I always tell the patients to stick to their own time zones. If you're traveling further, it's a lot harder. Um, you know, when I was in Europe a very long time, this was a long time ago now, when I was last in Europe, I was in Spain. So that was a fortunate choice because I decided to keep my time zone which meant, and I wake up at 6, 6.30, right? It'd be noon there. And if you're in Spain, nothing happens till noon. So, woohoo, perfect. So I just kept my time zone. I never switched, right? Going back to Asia is a lot harder, right? If I'm going back to Singapore, then all bets are off and I dread it. And part of the reason I don't make many trips back there because I hate that. So, okay, it's really hard on me for the jet lag, right? The, the key principles, though, is to set your clock by light exposure in your new time zone. So day and night, right? So I told you that you should sleep with the mask, block out the light. First thing in the morning, you should expose yourself to daylight. So wherever you are, whatever time zone, go to bed at their time. And then, you know, in the, in the daytime, expose yourself to as much natural lighting as possible, natural light as possible and set a timing for your meals and also exercise because that will help you set your clock. And then you can take your melatonin supplement maybe about an hour and a half, two hours before you actually want to go to bed, okay? All right. Um, well, I think we covered quite a few things today and there's lots that I didn't get to, but um, we'll save that for another episode then. Let's do our wrap up right now. Okay. We started off by saying how important uh, sleep is to your metabolic health 
and um, talked about the amount of sleep that we need. And then we went into the stages of sleep and we talked about the physiological changes that occur during sleep and how we have this nocturnal dipping in your vital signs. And if you have blunted dipping, that's related to increased cardiovascular mortality and risk of disease, right? Sleep has a particular architecture and it's asymmetric. So it's not easy to make up a sleep debt, right? Because most of your REM is at the end of the sleep your sleep duration and your non-REM sleep, your uh, deep sleep is in the earlier part of the night. So it really takes a very long time um, to make up your sleep debt. Then we went into sleep apnea and why it's really important if you have sleep apnea to get it treated because we don't want lack of oxygen to the brain. We don't want brain cells dying. I'm presuming you don't want brain cells dying. So if you do have sleep apnea, use your CPAP devices. If someone has hypertension that is resistant to treatment, to medications, and also um, arrhythmias, then really should have a sleep test to make sure they don't have sleep apnea and then that sleep apnea, if diagnosed, has to be treated, okay? Then we talked about your circadian clock and your primary clock setters, but you know, other local oscillators. And the most important of those would be your gut and the timing of your meals and um, how your metabolism and immune system are also on a circadian rhythm. We talked about how if you don't sleep, that would be in the long run fatal. And then we ended up by going into uh, having some good sleep hygiene and a good sleep routine. All right, a lot in there. And if you have further questions, just um, join me at the live Q&A sessions. Write down your questions. You can send them to me in advance. I'd be happy to answer them. If there are any other topics you'd like me to cover, also let me know. But for now, signing out from VLMD Rounds, I am Dr. Vivian Lowe, and I sing the body electric. Thanks for listening. Bye.